The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Esther. We're going to be in chapter 4. You'll find that towards the front of your Bible. Uh, if you find the book of Psalms and go back a little bit, it should land you in the right spot if you're still learning how to navigate that. So what I want you to know to just kind of catch up is, is we started this series called Hearts Ablaze on Easter Sunday that was out of Luke 24. And, and the, kind of the major premise came out of this reality that uh, as the disciples had revealed to them that it was Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus with them, they, they exclaimed to one another, did our hearts not burn within us. And why? What was happening? Well, because Jesus, as he walked along with them, took them to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and showed them how those were pointing to him. And that had this effect of lighting their hearts on fire with passion for Christ, his gospel, the redemptive plan of God unfolding. And so uh, the, the, the general premise is uh, we, standing in a far more privileged position from an information standpoint, Uh, We have all the reason in the world to have hearts ablaze. Uh, These guys were kind of having their first introduction to being able to see all of redemptive history through the lens of Christ and his gospel. Uh, And and we've got the whole book, right? And uh, we've got it all spelled out for us. So lots to be thankful for, lots to be excited about. Uh, Last week, I showed you how the disciples were sad and anxious as Jesus met them on the road. They were sad and anxious about Jesus being crucified and what that meant about the past, the present, and the future. And we laid out the premise that anxieties and pains from the past and in the present, as well as fears about the future, they can act as wet blankets to snuff out the flames of passion and joy and excitement that should burn within our hearts because of Jesus and his gospel. I think that's just us being honest about sometimes the the roadblocks, the hindrances that that can come along and and try to snuff that out. Um, And and I, you know, that, what I just laid out there was was kind of a catch-up, but it's it's very, very surface level. So just as a side note, I want to make sure we all at least are aware that this is how we're thinking about this idea, more often than not, whether we are working through a book of the Bible or even doing a topical series like this, the sermons each week, they, they build upon one another. And, and so as I encouraged you last week, it's important to go back and, and catch up if you miss one. And I know that some might say, well, you know, I, I don't really have time to do that. Or they may look at that and say, well, you know, I doesn't seem to be that important, right? There'll, there'll be another sermon next week, won't there? Right? But, and, and I want you to hear me, I'm not trying to be a curmudgeon here, um, I don't think that many of the same people would think the same way about missing an episode of their favorite TV show or podcast. Ooh. Right? I mean, let's, let's just think about it a second. Most people aren't going to say, oh, I didn't catch that episode the day it was released, so I'll just skip that and catch the next one. Is that the way most people would do it? I don't think so. Most people would be concerned that they might miss something important if they did that. 
That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> Somebody gets it. So all I'm saying is, I would just like all of us to think about whether or not keeping up with the weekly teaching of the Word of God is at least as important as keeping up with Moon Knight or sports scores or your favorite true crime podcast, right? Whatever you're into. Is that a fair question? Dang, huh? I came right out the gate today throwing shade. I didn't even warm you guys up with like a joke or a heartwarming story or anecdote. Just bam, right to it. <laughs> well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what. Here's why I felt safe doing that. The book of Esther, in my opinion, is heartwarming and hilarious. And so the rest of our time today... My hope is that you'll get plenty of both of that. Um, and I don't mean, it, it's not heartwarming like a movie about, you know, a group of family pets getting lost and then finding their way home. It's not like that. Um, it's not hilarious like some goofy movie, right? Something that like Jim Carrey would be in. But the, the faithfulness of God and, and I would say the bravery of Esther in this book is heartwarming. And, and God's tendency to display his sovereignty through irony, is hilarious. At least I think so. And, and if you've missed that thus far, I'm hoping to point some of it out to you today. Rejoicing in the risen Savior is, is the subtitle for this sermon series. And, and so I want us to keep in mind that because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crescendo of God's redemptive symphony, it stands as the most vibrant proof of his great power and goodwill towards us. Much of the Old Testament shows us the amazing attributes of God playing out in different scenarios. And, and Jesus showed those fellows on the road to Emmaus the divinely orchestrated events in the Hebrew scriptures were pointing to him in various ways. And and the resurrection of Jesus is, is the fulfillment of that ancient promise to Eve that a seed would come that would crush the head of the serpent. Because here's the reality, friends. If Jesus had stayed dead, then Satan, sin, and death would have won. But he didn't. It's the key. And in the most spectacular display of God's ironic sovereignty... The attempt by the forces of darkness to destroy and humiliate Jesus by crucifying him was the very thing that led to the devil's destruction and humiliation when our Savior rose up out of the grave. God has a sense of humor, even as he's doing battle with those that would seek to defy him and to hurt his people. It's, I mean... It's almost like, it's not like two cats fighting. You know, we oftentimes in, in other religions and philosophies, light and dark are locked in this kind of cosmic equal battle, right? You get the, 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 the light and the dark, the, the good part of the force, the bad part of the force. You get the yin, you get the yang, man. That's just not how it actually works, right? It's, I mean, it's not like two cats fighting. It's like a cat kind of playing with a mouse, <laughs> right? Or worse, uh, for the mouse anyways, <laughs> Um, we're talking about a, a sovereign God here. We're talking about an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God here. He's, he's just not sweating anything, okay? That's what I want you to know. And uh, we're going to see that uh, play out today in, in the book of Esther. It, it, it gives us a great look at how God is glorified by not just defeating his enemies, but 
making their attempts to fight against him look foolish. And I want to issue a challenge to each one of you to read the book of Esther this week. And if you're panicking as I say that, it's 10 short chapters. It really won't be a huge time commitment. Um, And I know that many of you have read it before, maybe many times, but I would like us as a church to, to do that this week and see it with fresh eyes in light of the ideas that we're discussing uh, not only today, but throughout this series. Um, <clears throat> I, I seriously thought about reading the whole thing today, but I, I know, you know, lunch cometh, right? So we can't do that. Um, but we're, we're going to just read the fourth chapter. But before we do that, I, what I want to do is give you a brief overview in case one of two things, either you're not familiar with the book of Esther or in case maybe the details have gotten a little foggy, okay? So we'll, we'll read the fourth chapter together. That's 17 verses, not that long. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to kind of lay this thing out for you <clears throat> leading up to that. So uh, as I said earlier uh, last week, we, we talked about how issues from the past can, can be a hindrance to a heart ablaze with joy in Jesus. This week, as we're looking at the story of Esther, we're going to be focused on how to avoid letting anxieties in the present dampen our zeal for our king, his gospel, and the furthering of his kingdom in the world. Okay? And so first thing for you to know is that the book of Esther is set about 100 years after the people of God were exiled to Babylon as a result of worshiping false gods and just kind of general rebellion against God. Now, interestingly, God is never mentioned by name anywhere in the book. But I would contend, and I think we'll see today, his fingerprints are evident throughout. Uh, the Persians, and you might say, well, why, why is that big, that big of a deal that God's name is not mentioned? Well, well we, we believe that the, the Orthodox Christian position that the Bible is not primarily about us, it's about God. So it seems a little odd. I mean, there was even debate to some degree if Esther belonged in the canon because of the lack of the mentioning of the name of God particularly. However, God's activity is absolutely clear in this book. And so, um, the, the, so it's 100 years after the exile to Babylon, but in, in the meantime, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And so now they're in charge at this point. Uh, Many exiles had been allowed to return to their homeland by the Persians, but many had chosen to stay there because at this point they had integrated into the fabric of the Persian culture, and and most, if not all of them at this point, had been born there since we are now several generations from the the initial captivity uh, by the Babylonians. And so uh, right off the bat, as you get into Esther, you'll you'll see the, the king of Persia mentioned, uh, a Nazareth is a name you may see in, in your Bible, or Xerxes, depending on what translation you have. You might be like, oh my gosh, what is this about? Well, it, it's pretty simple. It comes down to the etymology of which vein did they go in, right? So uh, Ahasuerus is basically the Latin form of the name of this king, Xerxes being the, the Greek form. Uh, the New American Standard Bible that I'm using uses Ahasuerus, so I'm going to do that. I like Xerxes better just because it's easier to say. Um, so anyways, and I think more people have heard that name, but in any case, same king. So if you're, if you're working through this with us and your translation says Xerxes, just know it's, it's talking about the same fellow, okay? 
And, and he may have had some good qualities, but basically throughout the book of Esther, he, he's, he's drunk and he's pretty gullible uh, overall. Doesn't, doesn't uh, show very well. Uh, and, and the book begins with Ahasuerus throwing a, a big party to show how much of a big shot he is. And when I say a big party, it was six months of feasting and a whole lot of drinking. Now, I know some of you in former days, you could party. I don't know, I don't know man, if you could hang six months. I hope not. I mean, I hope you weren't that good at it, because, man, that's crazy. But that's what's going on. That's kind of the scene we come into. And, and as if a six-month party was enough of a flex of his wealth and power and machismo, right? If that wasn't enough of a flex, at one point, he orders his wife, Queen Vashti, to come appear before everyone so he can show off how beautiful she is, right? Like, not only do I have money and power, but I have a hot wife. Everyone look, right? This basically was his, his position. But... Uh, and I think much to her credit, Vashti ain't about his nonsense, okay? She does not come when he requests her to come. Uh, but because of the fact that the king's pride gets assaulted by that refusal and in front of all his VIPs and his bros and whatnot, uh, he basically, along, you know, as a result of some bad advice, he, he decides to banish her, okay? Then these drunken Neanderthals come up with the idea to basically do a Miss America type of deal, except this would be Miss Persia. And in this case, what they're doing is they're trying to find a new queen to replace Vashti, okay? And um, I, I'm a little bit out of my depth here, but if I understand how the show The Bachelor works, it'd be like an even more jacked up version of that, basically. Am I on, who knows how The Bachelor works? Am I basically right? Okay, cool. I knew I was out on a limb there, but I thought I knew how it worked. Okay, and so this point is where, with Miss Persia going on, all right, this is where Esther enters the story. She's an orphan who was adopted by her uncle Mordecai, and she is described as being uh, rather beautiful. And, and so she basically wins the Miss Persia competition and becomes the new queen. But at the instruction of her uncle, uh, she never reveals that she is of the Jewish people. Okay, and then, then it, it just so happens, and when I use this phrase today, when it just so happens, that's a clue for you to be looking for God's sovereignty at work because it could look to the casual observer as if it just so happened, but man, there's just too many that stack up here. And so Mordecai, it just so happens that after uh, Esther is made queen, Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king and he snitches, but he does not get stitches. Uh, it does not work out for him that way this time. Um, he tells Esther, and she tells the king on his behalf. And uh, the two guys that were scheming, they get hung on the gallows. It's also mentioned at this point that, that the whole plot and how it was thwarted, that was recorded in the king's chronicles. That's an important detail that will come up later. And uh, right as that happens, you, you would think somebody would say thank you to Mordecai or something, but basically nothing happens. The next thing that we see, which is a little odd, but the very next thing that happens is we see another guy named Haman. And as the story unfolds, we find out, we, we find out that Haman is an absolute turd Ferguson. He is the worst. Um, and that's, you know, I was trying to think of a mild way to put it. as as mild as I could get. I mean, just a... a well, if I do any more, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble. So this guy, this guy, gets promoted to like second in command under the king, all right? 
And, and he was a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, who were sworn enemies of the Jews. Okay? And so what happens is this guy gets raised to this place of prominence. The king says, all right, now everybody needs to give honor to Haman when he's walking around. Uh, and when he passes by Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't bow. He doesn't grovel. And uh, even though the king has said everyone should. And, and the Bible's not very clear exactly what Mordecai's motives were. Uh, but the, what it does key into is the fact that Haman does not appreciate it. Haman doesn't like the fact that Mordecai doesn't bow and grovel like everyone else. Uh, it probably could have something to do with Mordecai knowing this guy was a descendant of the Amalekite king and some of the bad blood there. And, uh, you know, the Jewish people in general weren't super thrilled about bowing or getting into worshipful postures before monarchs. Not to say they never did, but definitely wasn't their favorite thing, which I agree. Uh, but anyways, what happens is Haman gets real ticked. Okay? And he decides he's not just going to destroy Mordecai, but he's going to destroy all the Jews throughout Persia. And there's this weird detail that says he kind of throws a dice, and uh, by, you know, it's like casting a lot, basically. And by that, he determines the day that it's going to happen, and he convinces the king, goes in, and he strokes his ego, uh, and he even offers to pay silver into the treasury, kind of a, a financial flex of his own. And, and what he's trying to convince the king to do is to wipe out all the Jews... 11 months later. So make a decree that 11 months from now, we're going to just start killing them. Which is wild, but again, Ahasuerus is, is kind of a, a drunk doofus. And, and he seems like he was drinking again when Haman came in to do this. So he's like, yeah, yeah okay, whatever. Give me my signet ring, you know what I mean? Kind of a dork. But uh, So they, they send, he agrees, they send out letters to all the provinces uh, that this is going to happen. And as you can probably guess, this causes a lot of confusion and uproar, and that basically brings us to chapter 4. So if you would, let's read chapter 4 together, and then we'll, we'll kind of keep moving through this storyline. Uh, you're getting a 100-mile-high view of the, of the book of Esther today, the whole thing. So this is chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, okay, so we're talking about the plot of Haman, now signed off on by the king, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one has to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. No one was to enter, sorry, the king's gate. That's a no-no. Don't do that. We don't, the king doesn't want to see sad stuff. Get out of here with your sadness, right? Basically, <laughs> go be sad somewhere else. Uh, so, in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. And then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai but, that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. And when Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai, to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went to, out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know 
For any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who's not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Praise God for his word. And so moving along in chapter 5, Esther goes before the king and he, instead of killing her, does in fact hold out that golden scepter that invites her to speak. She then invites the king and Haman to a banquet. And the king is pressing her. He knows she wants something. He's pressing her saying, look, man, up to half the kingdom I'll give you. Just tell me what, you're, what you want, right? Um, but all she asks in the first banquet is that they would come to another banquet the next day. And then she will lay out the request. The Bible isn't clear about whether that was, that's not as much of a, it just so happened thing. But I, I would say it is. God was working in his sovereignty. I don't, I don't know if even Esther became fearful during the first banquet of kind of going in on what she was, had to say. And, and so she's like, oh, we'll come back tomorrow. I'll make you something else. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't, it's not really clear, but what is really clear is that it was very important that it end up being the next day and not that first time because of what happens in the meantime because Haman leaves that banquet feeling very important, feeling very happy with himself that he was the one other person invited to the queen's banquet along with the king uh, and so he's leaving out of, of the, the palace there, the, the citadel, and, and he sees Mordecai at the gate. And Mordecai's still doing the Mordecai thing. He doesn't grovel. And so Haman goes home, and, he, and he's, he, he doesn't pick a fight with Mordecai there in the street. But his resolve to give Mordecai what he thinks has coming is, is, is crystallized. So he goes home, and he gets some of his boys to set up a gallows roughly 75 feet high, so that he can hang Mordecai on them publicly. He doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he wants to humiliate Mordecai. Because he feels like Mordecai's refusal to grovel before him is a humiliation. So he's going he's to pay him back. But then, once again, it just so happens that that very night, maybe he's wondering what Esther's going to ask. We, it doesn't say, but the, the, what we are told is the king that night can't sleep. And so he has his servants come and read him a book. Can you guess what book? It's the Chronicles. Particularly the portion of the Chronicles that recorded Mordecai snitching and saving his life. And I don't know if the king was just, you know, on, on, a, on a pretty heavy-duty drunk when it happened the first time, so he didn't think of this, but now it's being read back to him, and he's like, well, hold on. What, what has been done to honor this man? And the servants are like, 
Did you guys do anything? No? Okay, no, nothing. No, nothing was done for Mordecai, the guy that saved your life. Um, and so, and it's, it's important to remember, uh, no, one, no one knows yet, still no one knows, the king, Haman, nobody, that Esther is a Jew, and Haman doesn't know that Mordecai is her uncle. Okay, so th- those are important details to keep in mind here. <clears throat> so the king finds out nothing was done for Mordecai, and, and so he, he kind of asks, like, okay, who, who of my princes, who of my officials is around right now? Like, I need to have a conversation with someone about this. And, uh, and it, it also just so happened that Haman was strolling into the king's court at that very time to try and convince Ahasuerus to let him hang Mordecai. And so... The king says, all right, let Haman in. And instead of Haman getting a chance to say, hey, there's this guy Mordecai and I'm going to hang him and here's why and I think you should let me do it and whatever, whatever. The king is like, nope, I'm going to talk first. I got a question for you. What should be done to a man that the king would want to honor? And he just leaves it at that, okay? And Haman, being the little dumb-dumb that he is, thinks he assumed that the king was wanting to honor him. So Haman goes into this thing, man. He's like, well, here's, here's what you should do. You should put one of your royal robes on him, and then you should seat that man on one of your royal horses, and you should parade him through town and have someone be shouting about the king's honor for him. He stands up straight, waiting for the good news that that's about to happen to him. And the king's like, Haman, you're my man. That's a great idea. You personally, go do all that for Mordecai. (laughs) What? (laughs) It just so happened, right? Look, in my mind, when I hear someone say kick rocks, I think of Haman. Can you just imagine this man leading this royal horse with Mordecai on the back, right? Having to shout over and over again, this this is the man whom the king wants to honor. I I just, I imagine Haman... (laughs) <laughs> kicking rocks the whole time, you know what I mean? Just salty. Oh, it's so good. I like it so much. I told you, man, God is funny. He's hilarious, actually. And so after, <laughs> after that awesome display of, of God's power and his ability to turn things around, it's, it's time for banquet number two. So king, the king and Haman, they go back and And basically, at this point, Esther gets into it. And she asks the king to spare her life and the life of her people because they were sold out to be destroyed. Again, I'm going to remind you, at this point, no one knows she's a Jew yet. Okay? And so the king, hearing this, his basic response is, okay, it's all right. Who is the fool that would try this to harm you and your people? Just tell me and I'll I'll handle it. And she goes, It's your boy, Haman. And the Bible says Haman's like, you know, oh snap, he knows, it's bad. So the king gets up, goes out in the garden, like he, you know, he's fuming, and, and Haman's in there begging Esther for his life, and, and, he, and he's, he, he's like fall down on the, on the couch, you know, crying and stuff, and the king comes back in, and, and he didn't even like how close Haman got to Esther. He's like, oh, oh, you, oh and, and you're trying to touch her? It's over. The guards come in, they throw a bag on Haman's head, and they're like, hey, king, uh, quick detail, just want to let you know about this. Um, Haman actually built some gallows right by his house yesterday to hang Mordecai. And the king's like, awesome, great, run it. Hang him on those. Woo! 
again, as if the horsey ride wasn't bad enough. Now he's swinging from the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Come on now. Man, God's enemies are playing Candyland. He's doing 4D chess all the time. You understand? It's awesome. The irony and the sovereignty of God. And, and friends, you remember how I was telling you earlier that, that Satan wanted not only to kill, but to humiliate Jesus. All right? We're, we're, well, what, why am I saying that? Let me read you this from Colossians 2, Okay. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. We know who him is, right? That's Jesus. When you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Here's why we're here. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, that being the forces of darkness, spiritual rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I, that's not, we didn't just make that up. The apostle Paul caught the idea that this wasn't just a victory when Jesus got up out of the grave. It was a joke. It was a ha-ha. That was a nice try there with the crucifixion. What you didn't know is you played right into my hand. That was the plan all along. This Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. Yeah. I mean, guys, this, this is what I'm saying. This, this is some, look, okay, never mind. Hold on. Let me, look, and let's, let's keep track of this, okay? Mordecai is not the hero of the story, okay? In case the name of the book didn't give it away, I'll go ahead and tell you. The hero of this story is Esther. Why? Because she's the one who stuck her neck way out to save her people, putting her life on the line to the point that her summary statement in the end was, if I perish, I perish. I didn't mention Esther on Easter Sunday on purpose when we spent half the sermon walking from Genesis to Matthew looking at example after example of what Jesus could have been showing those boys on the road to Emmaus about how the Hebrew scriptures pointed to him? I, I stayed out of Esther on purpose, but, but can, can you not imagine, along with everything else we've already talked about that, that could have been in that epic Bible study, could you not imagine a part of that conversation Jesus being, and boys, do you, you remember the story of Esther, right? And the guys, these, these being devout Jews, knew their Bible, Oh yeah, yep, we, yeah. The story of Esther. You know who? You know who? You know who's a major bummer? Haman. That guy's a loser, right? She's like, yep, he was a loser. But here's here's what I want to show you. Here's what you guys maybe have missed so far is when Esther sticks her neck out to save her people. When Esther puts her life in peril to save her people, that was actually pointing forward to the fact that I was going to go even farther because Jesus is a better Esther because there was no golden scepter that was put out for Jesus, there was no stopping to it. He had to go all the way. He actually did have to lay his life down for the saving of his people. This is the kind of stuff that had these guys' hearts burning on the road to Emmaus. And my question to you today is, friends, when you hear the complexity and the intricacy and the beauty and the irony of God's sovereignty being unpacked through the story of redemption, does your heart burn? It should. <laughs> we should be excited. We should be enthralled. We should be overcome as we see over and over and over again 
how God is always ultimately in control of what's happening. Did it look like that when a decree went out from the king that we're going to eradicate all the Jews? No. But something in Mordecai was confident enough to say, Esther, even if you don't do what you're supposed to do here, deliverance for God's people, it'll, it'll come another way. Didn't he? We read that. Now you might be thinking, how is any of this going to help me navigate struggles that I'm going through right now? And I want to say this, right? Just as, it's, it's a general premise that I think is important to say right now. <clears throat> I've had, I, there's at least one example I can think of of someone saying to me that uh, they, they think it's more important to focus on application of the word of God than it is just, just preaching the content of the word of God itself. And I just want to say to you that we're, we're going to now pivot to some application. How is it that what we see here does apply? But I, I want you to just understand as a general rule of thumb, I, I don't believe that trying to think of every possible way these principles could apply to your life and then spoon feed that to you is the best way to raise you up as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's the best approach. I think the best approach is to actually teach you the word of God, teach you the principles and the truth that lays therein so that you can take that and apply it to whatever the situation is that you're going through. Because can't, I can't think of them all. And if, if I thought of every possible way the forces of darkness try to mess stuff up, if I try to think of every possible way you mess stuff up with your goofiness sometimes, even if I nailed it and, and we say it here for hours and I, I, okay, here's how this principle applies to every little detail I could possibly think of. We, the forces of darkness or we would think of some new way to goof stuff up. And then if you don't know how to take the, the content of the word of God, if you don't know how to take the truth of the word of God and then apply it yourself, then, then making disciples, teaching people how to love and follow Jesus and be a part of what he's doing in the earth, it's not about leaders in the church holding your hand to walk you through every single thing and say, okay, now this is how that applies. The truth of the word of God has the power to change hearts. The truth of the word of God has the power to change minds. The truth of the word of God has power, real power. And so that's why we will spend the preponderance of our time for the entirety of however God grants this church to exist in the content and the principles of the word of God, trusting that the spirit of God will walk with you on how to apply that as you continue to move through life and are encountered with all kinds of new situations and new foolish attempts by the forces of darkness to mess with God's kids and then we'll all laugh when God makes a fool of them again. Amen? Amen. Okay. Application's not bad, though. Here's a little bit, at least. All right. <clears throat> the first, first of all, I think, from an application standpoint, seeing the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, all the way to the point that he doesn't just finish fights, but he makes a fool of his enemies, that in and of itself should be a heart-igniting boost of confidence in the midst of whatever we are going through. Okay? Look, as it was playing out in the present tense, Mordecai and Esther couldn't see exactly how God was weaving all these, it just so happens. But he was, right? And, and, and if you see enough of that throughout the scripture, and I think you do, uh, and, and then there's a point where you begin to see enough of that in your own life, 
That, that carries forward. It gives you a faith-filled, genuine hope that the next time you're in something and from the present tense looking around like, God, how is this going to go okay? We reach back in trust and faith to all the times when God did stuff that was wild that we'd have never seen coming for his glory and for our good. And then we move forward walking by faith, but not by sight. Sometimes you're not going to see. We're not as smart as God. We don't sit from God's vantage point. It's a great thing to remind ourselves of. But he's shown us enough of his power and his goodness towards us that we can walk in confident faith. But I would say, so just flat out, the sovereignty of God, the irony of God, the way he deals with his enemies should should boost our confidence. Just, Just from walking through and reading the story of Esther, I'm hoping that is even further ignited as you read it for yourself this week. But I think narrowing down to a more particular application, we also have the potential here for freedom from the propensity of shrinking into a perpetual victim mentality. Let me read you verse 14 again of chapter 4 to tell you, I want to show you what I mean. Mordecai's words back to Esther, because she has... Word has come to her. Mordecai wants me to go before the king and and plead on behalf of the people. And uh, she responds back to her uncle like, yo, unk, here's, I don't know if you heard, but you don't just stroll into the king's presence. There's a law that says if you do that uninvited, you get the gallows, right? So this is then Mordecai's response. Well, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You and your father's house will perish. And who knows, I don't know exactly what Mordecai meant there. I don't know if he was thinking in the short term or if he's thinking, well, even if all the Jews that are in Persia right now are killed, there's exiles elsewhere, and so God's promises are still going to come. I don't know exactly what's in Mordecai's mind, but his confidence is in God. His confidence is not in like, ooh, man, if I don't say the right things to get my niece to do what I think she should do here, ooh, God's going to lose his battle. That's, that's freeing for you, you understand. It's freeing for you to be able to fall back and rest in the sovereignty and power of God. It doesn't mean I move towards disobedience or, or, or slacking or apathy, right? Because I do, the, the point here and what Mordecai's trying to prod her towards is, look, man, God will get his, God will get his will done, but if, if he wants to use you, why wouldn't you want to be in it, right? Like, what? Deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So first of all, don't get it twisted. God is gonna get his will accomplished, whether we each take our rightful place or not. But Esther isn't the only one, dear friends, who could have it said of her that they were potentially risen or were risen to a place of royalty for such a time as as this. Let me read you this from 1 Peter chapter 2. This is verse 9. It says, but you, it's talking to those who have come to faith in Christ and belong to him, you are a chosen people, a royal, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And why? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Esther's not the only one 
who was made royal for such a time as this. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. God is, is the king of what? Kings. He's the king of all the kings. He's the royal of all royals. And what has happened to us? Because of what Jesus has done, it's been made possible that we are adopted as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, here's the implication, here's the application. The word of God oftentimes has the application right there for you. You don't need me to come up with three cute stories for the application. It's right here. Therefore, because that's true, because you've been adopted as sons and daughters, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Yes, friends, I know we are weak and often wretched on our own, but friends, in Christ, we are royalty with all of the resources, benefits, and power that comes along with it. Let's not, let's not get it twisted about that. Let's not get confused. Esther was able to stick her neck out. Esther was able to exert power and influence into the situation to save her people, to have an effect that God wanted to have happen in the earth. Why? Because she, in and of herself, had that power or had earned that power? No, she had been brought in close proximity to a king. The same is true for us. So it's, it's okay for us to keep in mind that whatever power we have, whatever resources we have, whatever royalty we have, whatever edict we have to go into this world and be light among darkness, to be salt, okay? It, it is all gonna be by the power of God. It is our position to him that brings us into the thing at all. So it, we can stay properly humble, but also realize, man, <laughs> there's a reason we've been brought up as sons and daughters, made heirs, made a royal priesthood before God. What did Peter say the reason was? To proclaim his excellencies in the earth. To see that his kingdom continues to grow. To see that more and more people are alerted to the fact that there's a God this powerful and this good that loves them and has genuine care about the details of their life. He wants to save them from the wretched path and cycle of trying to earn righteousness on their own. The wretched cycle of trying to find an existence, eke out some existence that matters aside from connection to the God that made them. He wants the word of freedom to be preached in the earth. And he's risen up. He's raised up a royal priesthood. Heirs, sons and daughters to do it. And friends, it's a, if this isn't already clear, it, it's... It, <laughs> God's choice to include us in his redemptive plans and purposes, it was not a matter of need on his part. You understand that. He could have done it any variety of ways, getting the good news of his gospel to the world. But he has chosen out of his great love for us to include us in what he is doing. Not just save us and, and just rescue us, but to allow us to participate in what will be a source of eternal joy for all of us, the redemptive plan of God, to participate in the work of the gospel in the world, something so deep and mysterious and majestic and beautiful 
that Peter also told us the angels, as long as they've been around, are still longing to look into the depth of all the gospel contains. So yes, we are weak and wretched on our own, but in Christ we are royalty. That saves us, that can help us, it can get us out of a perpetual victim mentality, a kind of Eeyore disposition. Uh, I'm just this kind of fatalistic, well, I just, I just have to roll with the punches. There, there is a reality, friends, to, I mean, Spurgeon's quote's one of my favorites. Teach me to kiss the waves that crash, crash me against the rock of ages. Yes, there, there, is, there is a part of the Christian experience that is like that, but, but, but there is also this truth that we have been brought up to the place of royalty for such a time as this. The irony in God's sovereignty jumps off the pages of the book of Esther. It wasn't an accident that Esther was chosen to be queen. It wasn't an accident that Mordecai overheard the plot against the king. It wasn't an accident that the king couldn't sleep and had the chronicles read to him right before Haman was coming in to try to get Mordecai killed. It wasn't an accident that Haman ended up leading the horse, carrying Mordecai throughout the city and having to shout honor for him. And it wasn't an accident that Haman ended up hanging on the gallows he built for Mordecai. None of that was an accident, just like it wasn't an accident that Jesus being hung on a cross and publicly humiliated led to an open mockery being made of the foolishness of the forces of darkness. Thinking, thinking they could defeat the Son of God when three days later, he rose up out of the grave. Their foolishness was on full display. The irony of God and the working of his sovereignty was on full display. Friends, think about your life. How many it just so happens or it just so happened are there even in your life when you really think about it? Things that could be chalked up to chance. There's a lot, typically, if you can sit and think. And the hilarity continues because the ignorance continues. Because Satan and his dunce patrol are still out here trying to harm God's children. His royal sons and daughters. And we are all meant to delight and rejoice as God's promise to turn every one of those situations, those attacks, to turn them around. We're supposed to rejoice as we watch God do it. His promise to do it being fulfilled again and again. As we see it in the scriptures, as we see it happen in our own lives, this is all, it's a wind that blows upon the coals of our heart that can get cold through distraction and whatever else and to ignite again a flame, a proper flame, passion for the name of Christ. Friends, what has tried to take you out in your life? This plot to eradicate all God's people in Persia, it was a clear and present danger. And Mordecai, he floats the idea that perhaps Esther was raised to a position of royalty for such a time as this. But she is not the only one raised to a position of royalty for such a time as this. Let me remind you of what Peter said. A chosen people, a royal priesthood. You might be thinking, okay, yeah, but what? I don't know about that such a time as this. I mean, God was clearly very specifically doing things right then in the midst of of the issues and the events of the book of Esther. But I mean, are, are you jumping? Are you leaping a little bit to try to assure me that what God has done in making me one of his royal children is, is as much as the, the particulars of this story of Esther? Well, let me, let me 
put your mind at ease. Let me read you a very famous passage of Scripture. This is Paul's sermon at the Areopagus. Let's, let's see. If, if we're stretching to say the same royalty that has been bestowed upon us, that we've been called up to, the same position to our king as Esther was put in, is, does it ha- is it fair for us? Is it right for us to think? In the same way Mordecai mused, well, maybe, maybe you were put in this position to meet this specific plot of the enemy to try to destroy God's people in real time, right now, in the present. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul, Paul wasn't worried, was he? <laughs> the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined... So he's talking about all men that came from one man, right? It's, he's talking all of humanity that descended from Adam. You in that club? What, so what, what about that? What did God do with them? Determined, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God determined when you would be born. God determined where you would be born. God determined where you would be right now. And he has raised you to a place of royalty for such a time as this. Because there are still plots and schemes of the enemy. As dumb as it sounds. I mean, you, you, if, look, I, I guess, man, if I was Satan, man, I would have gave up back when the whole Haman and Mordecai thing. Like when I saw my dude hanging from the gallows he made for Mordecai, I'd be like, ooh, I'm out of my depth here. But he just keeps going. He just keeps trying, and that, I mean, that, there's a word about that, about how blinding pride can be, how stupid you can get when you let pride run you, amen, all the way up to him thinking he could do something about the Son of God. Well, let me rile these people up, and we'll get him crucified. That'll take care of it, you fool. And it wasn't like he didn't say, yeah, destroy this temple, and three days later, I'm going to rise it again, right? It wasn't, like, it wasn't like he didn't tilt his hand. It wasn't like... The, it was, it was that big of a secret, really. You'd think someone's been around as long as the devil could have been like, ooh, you know what? Maybe, maybe, here I am again, maybe in a fight that I can't finish. Compelled by pride and stupidity. I mean, you, you, see, you see the work, you see the MO of Satan in, in the way Haman handled himself. Having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. What, so for what? That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people... Everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Amen. So yes, here's the big premise. We are as Esther was. 
raised to a position of royalty, and it is for such a time as this. God does have a plan, and he has so graciously saw fit to include us in it. What's the plan? To declare that everyone, you have the opportunity, the privilege, friend, you get the chance to repent. God will receive you, pour his grace out upon you. He'll save you. He'll make you his. And then he'll bring you in and let you be a part of sharing that same great message with as many people as we can get it to. Amen. Praise God. I want you to think this week about what it means that you're a royal son or daughter. You're a part of a nation of royal priests before God. That he's raised you to that kind of place and for what purpose that is. And ask yourself, what does it look like for me to actually walk in the reality that I am of royal blood and that everything God does is for such a time as this. He knows what time it is, you understand. (laughs) He knows where you are. He knows what he's done. He also sees every single device of the enemy that's coming down the chute against you. And every single one of them, dear friends, if you'll you'll choose to stand in a a reasonable faith with all that we have to stand upon, we'll see it happen again and again. It'll get flipped on its head. Forces of darkness get embarrassed. We can laugh and keep on moving. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have hope, not only as we deal with pains and issues from the past, but we have hope right now in the present as things are unfolding. We have hope and we stand in a place of of not being able to see exactly how you're going to work the details, but we've seen your faithfulness enough times. In, in, in the words of Scripture, we've seen it enough times, even in our lives and the lives of people around us. Lord, help us have eyes to see. Help us, Lord, to be more diligent about committing to memory or writing down the times that you've been faithful. All of those it-just-so-happens moments where you prove yourself again and again to be in charge, and not just a little bit, but all the way that nobody who ever stands against you is going to have a chance, that it is utterly foolish to fight against you because you are the God who created everything. You are the God who spoke light and all things into existence. You are the ruler and sovereign Lord over all things, and anyone who stands against you is ultimately going to end up looking like a fool. So thank you, Lord, that there is irony in your sovereignty. Thank you that you do things sometimes just to show how in control you really are. May we be properly encouraged by these things. God, may these things have the effect those brothers had on the road to Emmaus. God, may your word be enough as it is intended to be to set our hearts aflame with passion, joy, and excitement at the thought of being your royal children and being called into your royal purposes in the earth. Thank you that you've made us a part of your kingdom not as slaves. That would have been fair. Just bringing us in, taking us out of darkness and death and making us slaves in your kingdom would have been 100% fair and I would worship you forever if that's all you were willing to do and you'd be worthy of it. But you went so much farther. You said, no, I don't want slaves. I want sons and I want daughters and I want them working with me. So as we rejoice for all eternity in the beauty of the plan of redemption, they get to rejoice in the part that they play. Thank you for the joy we have coming. Thank you for the joy we have now. Thank you. You're worthy of all our worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies. 
or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.